We are in the final stages. We're down to less than three issues. They're not easy, they're complex. It's about, after all, a country. That was Sunday. By Monday, bats aside... I'm worried about getting a reflection off my bald dome, right? Christopher Luxon made it sound like a deal was done. We've achieved, I think, a significant milestone overnight, and that is that we have actually closed out and agreed our policy programmes with both ACT and also with New Zealand First. Winston Peters didn't sound quite so certain. So are you pleased with the deal that you've reached with uh, National regarding the holiday expression? What's wrong with that question? Hey, are you pleased with it? You have well, the deal? You're making assumptions. Seymour told Stuff over the phone that Luxon had got a bit overexcited, saying, I can understand Chris's enthusiasm, but I just suspect he's had one too many wheat bix. Luxon returned fire, seeing Seymour's wheat bix quip and praising him. He probably got out and ate a lot of wheat bix this morning, I'd just say. By Tuesday, the confusion was cleared up. It was the media's fault. Well, look, I think actually in that case the media were confused. And everything was hunky-dory again. Progress, progress, progress. We've made great progress. We've just got to dot some eyes across some T's on most of uh, agreements. The only outstanding issues are now ministerial responsibilities. On Wednesday, further signs of progress, progress, progress with the start of the great exodus from Auckland back to Wellington. First up, Nationals, Chris Bishop. Oh, I've just literally run out of clothes, so I've got to go home. <laughs> this is Christopher Luxon's shit. And Nicola Willis, who suddenly didn't even want to be deputy. Oh, look, to be honest, I'm not in the race. David and Winston would do a great job. Then came New Zealand First's Shane Jones. Is Winston Peters holding the country to ransom because he wants to be the deputy prime minister? Most certainly not. But alas, hopes dashed with the sudden dampening of expectations by Chris Luxon outside his Rimawera home. We'll continue our conversations tonight um, and if we have to into tomorrow as well and as long as it takes, frankly. Then hurrah, hopes back up again with news of acts David Seymour and Brooke Van Velden leaving Auckland. Or was it just the weather? Apparently we're going down in case we need to be there. There's been a lot of flight disruptions and uh, need to beg, borrow and steal a seat on the flight to get down there. So negotiations are over, the, the deal's done from your end? Uh, no, no, there's still things to work out and details to work out. And finally, on one of the last flights out, was this the first puff of white smoke? We are in the final stages. We made some more progress this afternoon and this evening. Uh, we've come to Wellington. Uh, we've got to close it out now and, and, and bring it home to New Zealand. The only thing missing, that key ingredient, Winston Peters arrived in Welly. Is this your last rodeo? Is this government going to go the full distance? Will you go the more full? like your last rodeo. Kia ora, I'm Tova O'Brien. Welcome to the pod. 40 days and 40 nights, 40 long, rudderless days without a government, 40 days guessing, speculating, ruminating on rumours, 40 days reading into every wink, nudge and declaration that progress has been made. 40 days and here we are, finally on the cusp of a new government, or at least we hope. The spin coming from the parties involved is that it's taken this long because they're doing something that's never ever been done before, something so unprecedented, so remarkable, a proper three-way coalition, that it needs to take longer than most. And that's partly true. It's also true that there have been snags along the way which are enormously significant. Deputy Prime Minister, Attorney General, Treaty and Tax. These are no mere trifles. Each issue, each of these sticking points is fundamental in different ways to our democracy. So we wanted to drill into them and better understand the importance of each with experts who have been there, done that and can explain why they matter. 
On the pod this week, on the current impasse of who's going to get the Deputy Prime Minister gig, we speak to the most recent holder of the role, Labour's Grant Robertson. On the treaty referendum, a bottom line for ACT ruled out by National, we talked to former Prime Minister Sir Geoffrey Palmer, one of the country's foremost legal and academic experts on New Zealand's constitution. On tax and how on earth National will pay for its tax cuts without its golden goose, the foreign buyer's tax, we talked to former Revenue Minister under John Key, Peter Dunn. And finally, on speculation, Winston Peters is angling for Attorney General, former National Party Attorney General Chris Finlayson explains the significance of the unique role in Cabinet. Welcome to Sticking Points 101, why we should care. The first the country heard that Nicola Willis wasn't even in contention to be Deputy Prime Minister was Wednesday. She casually let it slip when a few of us ran into her at Parliament. Deputy Prime Minister Nicola Willis? Uh, look, to be honest, I'm not in the race. David and Winston would do a great job. Earlier in the week, it was Chris Luxon who gave the first hint by downplaying the role. There's a lot of talk about it, but it's a ceremonial role to actually fill in for when I'm incapacitated away uh, or, or not in the House. David Seymour hit back, telling staff it was a role he would take seriously, which would potentially involve a lot of very hard work. So which is it? Largely ceremonial or very hard work? Here to tell us, the last person to hold the role, Grant Robertson. Thank you very much for joining us, Grant Robertson. I appreciate your time. Is the Deputy Prime Minister role largely symbolic, as Christopher Luxon has said? No, it's not. Um, it's actually a quite important role, I think, in our system uh, to be there as the backstop for the Prime Minister. Uh, it's important enough that they've given it its own heading in the Cabinet Manual, uh, and I think it's a job that is, uh, over the course of the last, gosh, 60 or 70 years, proved to be a pretty important one for New Zealand. For sure. And then, so conversely, is it very hard work, as David Seymour has said? Well, it certainly adds to the workload of any minister. I mean, usually the Deputy Prime Minister is someone who's doing some other jobs, in my case, I mean, you know, finance and sport and so on. You know, in order to be able to step into the shoes of the Prime Minister in particular situations, you need to be up to speed with the issues of the day. They might be reading security briefings, it might be staying on top of a particular issue that's running. And so, yeah, it certainly adds to uh, the workload. And then there's the practical things, which you'll be well aware of, Tova, like substituting for the Prime Minister on, on Thursdays in Parliament. And obviously, you know, you've got to be ready for all the questions that come at you there. So definitely a job with, with significant work involved in it. Are there daily responsibilities? Is there time carved out in your day regularly to, to, um, to, to cover off any Deputy Prime Minister business? Yeah, certainly there was when I, I was doing the job. I mean, in addition to those sort of roles where you're filling in for the Prime Minister, um, in my case, the Prime Minister asked me to take on a couple of roles um, that would normally have fallen to her. But yeah, I would I would say in my time, I devoted time every day to something related to being the Deputy Prime Minister. Obviously, there were periods where it was quite consuming when the Prime Minister was overseas, for example, or on those Thursdays where, where she was out of town. So yeah, for me, it was, it was you know, there was something every day. So on those, yeah, on those Thursdays, when the Deputy Prime Minister fills in for the PM during question time, so takes all of those questions from the opposition, what are some of the quirks or difficulties that can be thrown up if the Deputy Prime Minister isn't from the largest party or the same party as the, the Prime Minister? Yeah, we certainly had the situation when Winston Peters was the Deputy Prime Minister that from time to time there might have been issues that he felt a little differently about than um, the Prime Minister, but by and large, 
Uh, those were managed by the fact that you are acting in the role of Prime Minister, and so you do have to put to one side uh, the personal views. I couldn't remember one or two exchanges in Christian time where Winston Peters was performing that role and, you know, flashed his well-known smile, and I think everybody knew that was the moment where perhaps uh, there was a slight difference of opinion, but by and large, in my experience, people understand that when they are the Deputy Prime Minister, they're actually just there to step into the shoes of the Prime Minister rather than try and take it off in a different direction. And I think were that to happen, that would start to really compromise the agreements that the parties had made. Totally. But I, I suppose just by the nature of well, governing alone, as you've been able to do, or governing in coalitions, as, as you've also been able to do, just by, by nature of those arrangements, it does make life easier if your Deputy Prime Minister is from the same party as your Prime Minister, doesn't it? Oh, without a doubt. I mean, obviously, you're coming at it from a you know pretty similar perspective, and and the chances of things going awry are much slimmer. But equally, we've had MMP for a long time. We've had deputy prime ministers from different parties uh, for some time, and so I think those who step into that role have to be aware that they're going to need to put aside some of their individual party uh, views to do that. As I say, if they don't, that's when things can start to go severely awry. And, and is it a symbolic nod as well in a, a coalition arrangement to give your coalition partner, as Labor did with New Zealand First in 2017, give that role to the other coalition partner? Is it a respect thing? Um, in some ways, I think as much as anything, it's about how do you solidify the relationship that you've got. And and that's definitely a way that you can do it. It makes the, the other party very much part of the governing arrangements. That's obviously the challenge for Christopher Luxon because he's got two parties, which it appears he is going to try and put into one effective governing arrangement. It's going to be very hard for him to be able to choose between the two because inevitably someone is going to be very upset. The other alternative, I guess, is that you have co-deputy prime ministers. That sounds like a pretty woke position for Winston and David to take up, but that might be a way through it. Is that workable? Would co-deputy prime ministers be workable? It'd be entertaining. <laughs> um, I'm not. Look, I think it would be hard because the other aspect, which you know, we don't really want to joke about. But if at any point the prime minister is incapacitated, and obviously that can happen very suddenly, the deputy prime minister needs to step up, and that's also covered off in the cabinet manual. If there were two of them, it might be a little hard to know who was stepping up, and definitely would create some constitutional difficulties. So. Yes, it would be theoretically possible. I mean, other countries have multiple deputy prime ministers, so it can be done. But in our particular governing arrangements, you'd probably need to have a, an understanding of who is the more senior of the two. For sure, especially in those kind of gravest, almost extreme of circumstances for the, um, for the role. In a three-way coalition, should it go to the second largest party? Is it just basic maths? Oh, look, I mean, I think politics will always trump basic maths. Um, and so it's it's really a question for Christopher Luxon as to how he's trying to manage this. I mean, yes, that would be a way of doing it, wouldn't it? You would say, well, you're the largest party, so therefore it should be you. You could certainly justify it that way. Um, if that's the path Christopher Luxon chooses, then he obviously has to deal with how Winston Peters feels about that, who's a person who's done the job twice before. And may well be sitting there saying, well, I have done the job twice before. So, you know, this is a tricky time for him um, to be able to choose. Nicola Willis taking herself out of the picture or not being in the picture takes away a kind of a compromise position that might have existed there. And so 
yeah, this is going to be a very tough choice for Christopher Luxon. A hundred percent. And is there an argument as well? Because you were Deputy Prime Minister as well as Finance Minister. Bill English was Deputy and Finance under John Key. Is there an argument that those roles are quite complementary? They definitely are complementary. And one of the reasons for that is as Finance Minister, you end up with your finger in every pie because everything involves money, essentially. And so you kind of are already across a range of issues. Um, you know, you're talking about the Thursday question times. I found that 99 times out of 100, I was already somehow rather involved in the issues that were coming up. If you're not the finance minister, you've got a bit more work to do to keep up to speed. The finance minister themselves is, is going to be drawn into trying to help you. So, yeah, it, again, all these things are doable, but they definitely represent a challenge. And, and certainly my experience, and I think from what I saw with Bill English uh, and Michael Cullen, you know, being finance minister certainly helps a lot. But like I said before, politics tends to trump a lot of things in these situations. And thank you for ringing Cullen in there as well. I realised immediately I'd made a glaring omission of Cullen and Clark. Is the upshot that, that whoever gets DPM will end up spending more time with the Prime Minister? So if Winston gets it, he's going to be with Luxon more, vice versa, Seymour and, and Luxon, you end up with a tighter relationship. Almost inevitably, I would have thought, you know, that's certainly the way the relationships have worked. Having said that, Christopher Luxon seems relatively ignorant of what the role of Deputy Prime Minister is if he thinks it's only ceremonial. So um, who knows how he thinks that relationship will work. But in the past, certainly what you would have seen is that that relationship forms a pretty close bond. It's inevitable that it does. In a coalition government, it certainly solidifies relationships. And in this case, only one relationship, it seems, is going to be able to be solidified in that way. Thank you so much for your time, Grant Robertson, for explaining the role and also just, you know, getting the boot in there as well, <laughs> as you'll want to do. Oh, look, just stating the facts. Thanks, Tova. On the treaty referendum, David Seymour's big bottom line. On the pod the morning after the election, he appeared to give himself a bit of wriggle room. So that's something the bottom that, line. Yeah, this is something that is now incredibly popular. You love <laughs> you love using that term. I just make the case that it's something that needs to happen. We're going to argue very strongly okay, that it We've also spoken to a couple of former Prime Ministers on the pod about a referendum on the treaty. Nationals Jim Bolger. I think a referendum on the treaty would be very divisive. We shouldn't go there at all. Trying to rewrite, reinterpret the intentions of a document that was signed formally, legally, correctly 160, 70 years ago is simply unwise, Mm. to put it very gently. Bloody stupid, if you want to put it accurately. And Labour's Helen Clark. This one would just rip us down the middle, I think, as a society, so uh, I don't think New Zealand should go near that. Now, a third former Prime Minister, who's also New Zealand's top constitutional law expert, Sir Geoffrey Palmer. Thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. Without being reductive, can we start at a very base level? What is the (laughs) treaty and how does it sit in our constitution? The treaty is an agreement made by the British Crown in the days of the British Empire in 1840 uh, with the chiefs of Aotearoa, New Zealand. And it is a binding international law treaty. And that really needs to be understood at the beginning. And then how does it sit into our kind of slightly cobbled together constitutional arrangement? With difficulty. because what happened immediately after the treaty, Māori had one view of it based on the Tereo version. The Tereo version means something different than the English version. The English version talks about kawanatanga, 
which is governance, but it's not sovereignty. And uh, what the Maori Tereo version talks about is, in fact, sovereignty in Maoridom. In the in the word uh, of of the treaty, uh, the, the difficulty between reconciling the Tereo version and the English version is really pretty impossible. Maybe then talk to people a bit more about those principles of the treaty or treaties. What what are they? The treaty is very simple. It's very short, and it only has three provisions. And the third provision makes Maori New Zealand citizens. But they thought that the treaty gave them power to govern their own affairs, and the British Crown did not take that view. And the more settlers arrived, the more pressure there was on land. And it started in 1843 at Tua Marina with the Wairau fray. And then it went on to the New Zealand Wars, which were a tremendous amount of um, military activity. And the result of that was that very little was heard of the treaty for many, many years. But Māori kept on the view that it was something that gave them rights and they were entitled to have those rights. And so Matthew Rasa, who was Minister of Māori Affairs in the 70s, passed legislation uh, to set up the Waitangi Tribunal, and it started holding hearings, but only in contemporary claims. And uh, that, that looked like a good recipe, and in 1986, the jurisdiction of the Waitangi Tribunal was extended back to 1840, and so a whole series of claims were heard. And, you know, the claims have been very, very numerous, about $10 billion or more has been transferred to Māori. There have been 73 or probably 75 or 6 by now settlement acts passed by Parliament. Um, and some of them have been quite creative, like the uh, Tuhoi case for the Urawiras and the Whanganui River case and the Pariaka, which was a particularly egregious breach. The thing is that the treaty is part and parcel of the New Zealand value system. It has been for many years. You can't just pass a law and get rid of it. That will never happen. We've got other things that Maori can rely on as well. Uh, the doctrine of Aboriginal title about land, uh, that's common to the United States and Australia as well as New Zealand. And indeed, mm. the foreshore and seabed case uh, showed that. And the, the, there is a lot of litigation going on about foreshore and seabed claims right now in the High Court. Now, people are entitled to justice, and the egregious injustice done for Māori for such a long time needs to be redressed. You can't make everything the same as it was, of course, but you have to recognise common justice. And what worries me about the political debate that's occurred on this matter is that it's, it's conducted on a basis of a lack of understanding of the very complex complicated issues that are at stake here and most people don't know about them because they don't study them because they don't have time to, they go to work. And that is why we are so grateful to be speaking to you so that you can help us um, better understand some of those complexities. What role the Waitangi Tribunal, because this is where a lot of the argument is now focused, what role the, the Waitangi Tribunal and the courts in terms of interpreting and applying the treaty? Well, uh, there was a famous New Zealand judge, uh, Justice Muir Chilwell, who saw quite a few years ago now said uh, that treaty was part of the fabric of the law in New Zealand. There are 30 statutes about that have been passed by Parliament that mention the treaty. 
When that happens, immediately the courts are empowered to interpret the treaty because a treaty doesn't become binding on the executive government unless it's been ratified by Parliament. But what happens here is if you've got the treaty mentioned in a statute, it has to be interpreted. And, you know, you cannot have Parliament interpreting its own law because that's a concentration of power that is manifestly unacceptable in a democracy. And so our system is that the judges interpret the statutes that are passed by Parliament and there you can appeal that system through the courts and if the government doesn't like it and they can muster the numbers to overrule it, then they can pass legislation doing it. But the idea that somehow a popular uh, view that the treaty's gone too far is simple-minded and wrong. I'll give you a quote from Shane Jones here from New Zealand First. He uh, has talked about how he and ACT or ACT in New Zealand First share similar concerns, saying, quote, that it is the role of Parliament to make the laws, not the role of the courts to follow flights of fancy or indeed to thwart the will of Parliament. Has that happened? It has not happened. Uh, And indeed, uh, I find it quite remarkable. Uh, Shane Jones is a person I've worked with. He was the Maori advisor on the Resource Management Act which has a lot of pro-Māori provisions in it. I am absolutely surprised that Māori would be advocating to sort of de-emphasising the treaty. I mean, what else have Māori got to hold on to? They've been systematically disadvantaged for all their history. Uh, and, And that is beginning to change, and it should change, and I'm pleased it's changing. But I have to say that I totally agree with what Jim Bolger said Uh, on this question of uh, having a referendum on the treaty. It is manifestly absurd. We have been moving towards gradually, reasonably and significantly. And to put all that at peril is just unthinkable. Part of the ACT Party policy is, quote, basing treaty principles on the actual treaty, not interpretations of obscure principles. Well, they're not obscure. I mean... Anybody who analyzes it closely can see that it is a very brief document, but its intent is pretty clear. Its intent is now being met to some degree, not to a title degree. You've got to understand that Tikanga Māori is a different thing from the treaty. Tikanga Māori is at play in all of this as well, and Tikanga Māori is now taught in the law schools, it has to be, under the Council of Legal Education's edict. Uh, and tikanga Māori is the Māori way of doing things if they are in charge of their own canoe, as it were. And that uh, can happen in certain circumstances. It doesn't happen all over the place. There's a sort of lot of popular nonsense talked about this. And I wish, I wish indeed uh, the political parties would take the trouble of doing the work and the research and understanding the reality of what's happening in New Zealand now. And on that, one of the things that is happening now is the debate around this Treaty Referendum Act wants to define those treaty principles or redefine the treaty principles as, uh, one, the New Zealand government has the right to govern New Zealand, two, the New Zealand government will protect all New Zealanders' authority over their land and other property, and three, all New Zealanders are equal under the law with the same rights and duties. How do you see Act's definitions squaring with both texts, the treaty and Tetiriti? Well, I just say that Act, Act's idea of passing a law like that, whether by referendum or otherwise, will lead to the court having to interpret it. And it will be a very complex set of things. 
And the idea that you can get out of this by some simple-minded formula of that sort seems to me to be quite wrong. Is it even possible to definitively define the texts of, of both the treaty and Te Tiriti, or is that what has been done at this kind of higher level with the, the principles as they the stand? The lessons of constitutional law are that it's really impossible to define anything with precision that answers all cases in advance. That is why we have legislation. That is why we just keep going to see what happens. I mean, I've got to say to you that I, I just don't quite understand how minor parties can get their own way on this sort of thing when the percentage of public opinion that they actually represent is quite low. I don't think the treaty referendum's going to go ahead, but the compromise might be some kind of review of the use of the principles. Is, is there well, merit in that? I don't quite know what you're reviewing then. I, I mean, it, it, it seems to me, and they've talked also of trying to clip the wings of the Waitangi Tribunal. I can't imagine anything will be gained by that. The Waitangi Tribunal findings are not binding on anyone. They have to be accepted. And all those settlement works that they did were recommendations and the Crown accepted a lot of them and they did settlements on their own behalf as well. What is it about Maori values that you don't like? What is it mm. that you're trying to do? What is the end game here? What is the objective of the policy? That's what I'd like to know, because it seems to me the objective of the policy is to promote division. And on that, you, you've written uh, that the most serious challenge New Zealand faces is to avoid having a permanent underclass defined by race. On the other side of the debate, the one law for all argument is that people shouldn't be getting special rights and privileges based on race. And as David Seymour, I think, put it in a recent interview this idea that some people are born special and others aren't is just gross, said Seymour. What's your response to well, people I who think, think Māori that's are arrant getting... nonsense. Arrant nonsense. Because everyone has different rights from everyone else. Women have different rights than men. Children have different rights than adults. The idea that there's one law for all, as Dr Brash has permanently done sermons on quite wrongly, is a misunderstanding of New Zealand history and it will have very poor results upon the community at large. We want to live in peace and stability in New Zealand. We don't want to have division, because when you have division and polarisation, you get the situation that arose in Trump's United States. Keep out of that. And what do you say to those people that think, despite Māori being represented in all of the wrong statistics, that Māori are getting special privileges? Well... They're not. They, they were dispossessed of most of their land. Their, their imprisonment rates are dreadful. Their rates are about 50% of the prisoners in New Zealand are Māori. They are arrested much more than Pākehā are. Uh, their health statistics are uh, lamentable. Uh, and, and, you know, the thing is, if you're going to try and fix poverty, you really have got to address Pacific Island and Māori because they are people who suffer disproportionately from it. You, you, you know, we've forgotten about the welfare state in New Zealand. The welfare state is presumed to float all boats and give everyone a fair opportunity. So what then do you read into the fact that in 2023, this has been one of the sticking points for our government? Well, I think it's very sad and I hope that uh, good can come out of it because I don't know what the agreements are, and uh, I don't know whether some of it's just persiflage for political purposes, 
or whether there is in fact real substance in what is being proposed because I haven't seen any substance yet. So Geoffrey Palmer, it is always a pleasure speaking with you um, and just absorbing some of that enormous brain. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. When we had Nicola Willis on the pod during the campaign, she told us National's tax cuts were non-negotiable. If you are so certain, you are so rock solid, will you resign if you don't realise that first $715 million? (laughs) I haven't even got the job yet. But back yourself. If you're so rock solid, you told me this before, if you're so rock solid, just back yourself. I am absolutely rock solid. We will be delivering our income tax reduction plan and we will be doing it without a dollar of borrowing. But the lion's share of the money National needs to pay for the cuts comes from its foreign buyer's tax. But Shane Jones told the pod New Zealand First wasn't yet convinced. Oh, no, I couldn't. Uh, I, 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 I'm going to repeat what I say. That's a key part of Christopher Luxon's uh, tax plan. A concern I have about is the inflationary impact of a whole lot of rich foreigners coming in here. So how problematic is it if you don't have that $740 million on average a year that you'd banked from the tax? And where does it come from instead? Former Revenue Minister Peter Dunn, welcome. My pleasure. Well, what is a government's fiscal plan and why is it important? Well, a fiscal plan sets out the program for the next three years, what measures are going to be introduced when, how much they're going to cost, how they're going to be budgeted. All of those things are important because the government has to put together an annual budget, which shows in in classic household sense its income and its expenditure and how that's to be made up. And the numbers have got to broadly balance out. So um, not just the individual taxpayer, but the rating agencies, the international financial community looks at these things and says, yeah, those numbers add up. New Zealand knows what it's doing. You know, good on them. Or there are problems that need to be addressed. Uh, And also, I think that increasingly um, sophisticated commentators look to the fiscal plan to work out, is the government actually in control of its finances? Can Mm. it afford what it's doing? All those sorts of things. Which is why the concept of the fiscal hole has become such Mm. a kind of mainstay Mm. of our elections and and budgets as well, hasn't it? Um, National's fiscal plan has five principles, return to surplus and reduce debt, support frontline services, infrastructure investment, tighten government spending, and then principle five is tax relief. So how core to National's fiscal plan are its tax cuts? I think they are an important part of the political message. That's what it campaigned on. Uh, Are they core to the fiscal plan? I'm not sure that they are. But then you've got to say, well, without those tax cuts, what's National's political appeal? It was a big appeal to, Mm. we we can do this, we can bring you tax cuts, and we can fund them. And if it can't deliver on those things, then obviously its credibility is severely at stake. So let's then work on the assumption that the foreign buyer's tax is dead in a ditch, that Winston Peters and New Zealand First weren't willing to capitulate on their raison d'etre and allow foreign buyers back into the housing market in New Zealand. The the foreign buyer's tax, it was the bulk of the funding for those tax cuts. So how significant is that, that it won't be able to get it across the line? Well, just put a few figures on the table. Uh, It was estimated National would get $740 million a year from the foreign buyer's tax. That was calculated on on the sale of 50,000 homes to Mm. foreigners. 
If you look at that another way, the 50,000 homes is about the top 2 or 3% of the market. So there are other ways of achieving 750 million thereabouts. It's, it's not a big sum in tax figures. Uh, it can be done in various ways, uh, assuming the government wants to proceed with the plan. And as I say, if they don't, then they're in political trouble. So mm. what are the options? Well, one is you, you just simply bung it on the deficit, put it on the credit card if you like. I think that would cause some credibility problems in terms of national wanting to get us back to surplus, uh, reduced debt, etc. Mm. The other option is you look for other revenue streams. And I would have thought there are a couple of obvious possibilities. They mightn't be politically popular, but they're easily manageable. If you were to put, for example, a 1% stamp duty on homes of over $2 million, sold at over $2 million. That's about 50,000 homes a year, funnily enough. And what would that raise? It would raise about $750 million. It would be mm. an average increase of about $15,000 on that house of over $2 million. So you could do that. There is no way on God's green earth that a national-led government is going to put a stamp duty in place, is well, it? Well, it may not may not be, but you could call it something else. But a stamp duty would be the easiest because we actually we already have it. It's just set at 0% at the moment. You can simply ratchet up the figure. So that's one option. The other option is you start to say, well, we'll fund it by cutting services elsewhere. That starts to get you into quite tricky territory. Well, the third one is you can change, but it would work for probably year one only. You change the timing of the implementation. So you save a little bit along the way by saying it comes in at the 1st of July rather than earlier. Then you've got the problem of what you do in subsequent years. Mm. All I'm saying is I think there are ways of doing it if, if they can't get the foreign buyer tax through, which looks likely. I think that was always going to be problematic anyway because of our tax treaties uh, with a number of countries where as part of those treaties, we don't allow foreigners to be taxed at a more pernicious rate than mm. domestic taxpayers. So, you know, I think they would have been looking at these options for some time now. And I think actually that there's a political argument there as well, isn't there, that National probably be quite pleased that New Zealand First has put the kibosh on this thing because economists had obliterated the the maths that Nicola Willis and Christopher Luxon had, had done around the foreign buyers tax. So actually maybe this was a little bit of a get-out-of-jail-free card for them. It could be, provided they've got another way of doing it. Yeah, that's exactly right. So let's drill into a few of those options that you've just talked about. So say you're the revenue minister, as you once were, the prime minister comes to you and says... I'm sorry, mate, that $740 million that we were going to be using to fund our, our tax cuts, that's not going to happen. What do you say back? What's your first option? Well, you say, well, we need to look for another revenue source. We've got a whole lot of things on the table. We could bring, bring in a land tax, for instance, on the unimproved value of land. We could bring in a capital gains tax. All of these are things that National has ruled out. So that's why I came back to my stamp duty option. It's mm. neat and easy. It's not, it's not that politically palatable, but it's the neatest and easiest way, and it would only affect the top two or three percent of house sales anyway. If, if none of those were workable, I'd then be saying, okay, what other options within the system are there? Can we tweak the level of adjustment of tax thresholds, which National has also promised? Can we look at things like some of our working for families entitlements, for instance, and particularly um, for higher income families? Are they absolutely necessary? So there are options, but knowing the way the tax system works, the tax purists would be saying, what's the neatest and simplest and least distortionary way of proceeding if you want to raise that money? The ACT Party is definitely pushing for more than National is proposing in terms of public sector cuts. National's looking at about $600 million a year in savings from the, the public service to help fund its tax plan. 
could you feasibly find more than twice that if that were what it came down to? Could you cut into the public sector that deep to make up the shortfall lost from the foreign buyers tax? It would need to be very specific cuts. I mean, you, you could say we're having an X percent cut across the board and baselines. Mm. Uh, that would achieve a certain amount. But really, if you wanted to make some specific gains, you'd probably need to look at quite specific programs. And then, as I say, you'd probably be doing it, that on an ongoing basis rather than just an annual basis because that tax would have to be funded every year. It's doable. But if the government's keen to proceed with a mini-budget before Christmas, it might be a challenge to get that sort of a package together in time, which brings me back to the point of maybe they might defer the implementation of that stage of it a little bit. That would not only give them more time, but would also in the first year at least reduce the likely cost of them. So they've got other opportunities to find new sources of revenue. And there are a few things that they could potentially defer, aren't there? So you could defer the tax cuts proper. You could also potentially defer interest deductibility, you could potentially mm. defer those childcare subsidies that the National Party's proposing. Would, would that do it? It would get you close to it. But again, you've got to be doing this annually. It's not just mm. a one-off because those costs will occur next year, the year after and on into the future. So what about some big bang things then, like KiwiSaver contributions or um, fees-free was something that former State Services Commissioner Ian Rennie put forward to us last week on the pod? Well, I think that one, that type of issue is more likely than things like KiwiSaver because KiwiSaver, in my view, has already been battered around a bit too much anyway. It was mm. supposed to be a sacrosanct retirement savings scheme. We've now got so many sort of exceptions to it and in early points of entry that it's being detracted from. But something like a big policy like fees-free, where, where you could argue that it hasn't actually achieved the gains that it was supposed to. You could offset that and you could offset future budget allocations of that against the cost of this as well. Are there any other little tweak taxes that you could do to try and bring in more revenue? Oh, I mean, everyone's I'm always a bit, a, I'm always a bit wary of tweak taxes because they are sort of a bit here and there and a bit, you know, a bit of this and a bit of that. Um, you could do it. You could probably, you know, increase some of your rates, not your tax rates, but some of the other charges. But that's pretty sort of ephemeral stuff and gets a bit messy. And take, going back to our earlier scenario of you being the revenue minister, your prime minister comes and says you don't have this. What are you thinking? Are you thinking... How short-sighted were you to have put that plan out in the first place? What a numpty. What does it say well, about national's fiscal management? One, one would have hoped that at the point that they were developing the plan, they'd have come to their revenue spokesman and said, how are we going to pay for all this? What are mm. the options? Uh, and I think they did that, and there's some argument as to how accurate the figures they got were. And bear in mind that the, the opposition doesn't always have access to the up-to-the-moment um, government financial figures. But you'd hope that at the stage it was being developed, it was an integrated package that, that they could justify. And for the first 24 hours, I think, after it's released, it looked as though it was, was until people mm. started asking questions about it and the answers were less than convincing. So to have something so fundamental to your economic management, to have that at stake so soon after announcing mm. it, what should voters take away from that? I think voters should and did take away from it a sense of wariness as to how deliverable it was. Uh, was this credible? It sounded a little bit too good to be true, and the maxim about things that sound too good to be true usually are look like prevailing. And I think that's what's happened is the longer this has gone on, which in a funny sort of way puts more pressure on, on National to deliver the program as intact as they can, because mm. they almost have to prove the voters' suspicion wrong here. If they pull back from this, it will confirm for a lot of people that the whole thing was a bit of a con right from the outset. And that's the last message they want to send. So they'll be looking desperately if they haven't got their foreign buyers tax for other ways of raising that amount of money, uh, both in the short term and on an ongoing basis for the next um, however long 
it's going to be in place. And then that's going to have an enormous political butterfly effect as well. If any of the things that you've laid out as, as possibilities come well, to Well, the, the other side of it... that is that in the agreements with ACT and New Zealand First, there were almost certainly going to be additional spending commitments. Mm. They have to be funded as well. And to some extent, you could say, well, maybe that also provides a bit of an out. Well, yes, it does, except that we come back to this fundamental point that this was the flagship policy mm. that National went to the electorate on. It's the largest party in Parliament. It's not credible for it to say, well, we can't actually deliver our flagship policy because of commitments we've had to make to our support partners. You know, that just sounds a bit too yeah. a bit too cute to be acceptable. It sure does. You, you must be feeling pretty pleased that you're not the Revenue Minister right now. Oh, it'd be interesting to try and work out how, the way around it. Um, and I he can loves imagine, the challenge. Yeah, and I can imagine a number of officials would like the challenge too of saying, well, you could do this or you could do that. They don't have to make the political calls, of course. They just put up the facts and the figures and the numbers and then you work your way around them. Peter Dunn, thank you so much for joining us. Always um, always wonderful to have your big brain on these, on these matters, helping us understand why this is so important, this particular sticking point. Thank you. Thank you. Late last week, the Wellington rumour mill started spinning furiously with word that Winston Peters was angling to be Attorney General. I'd attempted to ask Chris Luxon about this last week, but shame, I did something I often do but edit out, I minced my words and instead of asking Luxon about Winston Peters getting the Attorney General role, I asked this. Is he going to get the Auditor General role? Is that uh, again, not realistically into, up for grabs? Not getting into any of those conversations. The Auditor General, not an appointment for Luxon to make. In an attempt to redeem myself, I asked the same question of Winston Peters. Are you angling for the Attorney General role? Are you angling for the Attorney General role? Nothing. He either didn't hear or didn't care. Regardless, it is a critically important role and here to tell us why former Attorney General, Attorney General Chris Finlayson. Welcome. Thank you very much for inviting me. What does the Attorney General do? The Attorney General is a Minister of the Crown who's responsible for the Parliamentary Council Office and the Crown Law Office. And the Attorney General is also what is called the senior law officer of the Crown. The, the junior law officer is the Solicitor General who has day-to-day -day administration of the Crown Law Office. It's a very important constitutional role providing uh, a link between the executive and the judiciary, uh, appointing judges, and above all, ensuring that the business of government is conducted uh, according to the rule of law. So in, in um, absolute layman's terms, what are the duties of, of the Attorney General? Well, on a day-to-day -day basis, the Attorney General would be meeting with uh, senior judges to discuss judicial appointments and any judicial issues uh, and ensuring that uh, the Crown Law Office is operating well. It has to be very staunch in defending the Parliamentary Council Office because you know politicians and ministers are anxious to get their program through the House, and often they want legislation drafted in five minutes, uh, and so the Attorney-General has often to sit down with his or her colleagues and say, well, you may want this complex bill tomorrow, but you're not getting it, because if it's rushed, mistakes will be made, and the Parliamentary Council Office can't do it, so you'll just have to wait. 
So the Attorney General, are you basically running a ruler over all legislation that is introduced to the Parliament? You've got to make sure that, for example, it complies with the Bill of Rights, and sometimes that really does aggravate one's ministerial colleagues. I remember someone saying to me once, the trouble with you, Finlayson, is you're too independent of the executive. He was only half joking. (laughs) And this is a really interesting and important point, particularly as we head into a what we're expecting to be a three-way coalition arrangement. Are there any complications that you could foresee that might be thrown up if you have an Attorney General from a different party other than that of the Prime Minister? Oh, well, yes, I could see a situation where uh, one of the coalition partners wants a piece of legislation introduced that falls foul of the Bill of Rights in, in a number of respects. So, um, I think it's very important that whoever is Attorney General, regardless of what party, is that they are true to the principles uh, of the Office of Attorney General uh, and are prepared to to stand up not only to their their, uh, adversaries, but also their friends. And, And in terms of appointing judges, is that a unilateral thing on the part of the Attorney General, or are there a bunch of you... That out. Well, the legislation that governs what are called the senior courts, High Court, Court of Appeal uh, and Supreme Court, uh, require that there are expressions of interest that go out from time to time. People are recommended for appointment. The Attorney General and the Chief Justice will talk about those appointments. Ultimately, it's, an, it's for the Attorney General. But there, when I was uh, attorney and uh, Dame Sharn Elias was Chief Justice, there was a protocol developed whereby we would jointly agree to three names for an appointment, say, to the High Court, and from those three, the Attorney General would choose. When it came to the Court of Appeal and Supreme Court, um, you would discuss these matters with the Head of Bench uh, and with the Chief Justice, and a decision would be made accordingly. But it's important to note that in my time as Attorney General, I appointed people I knew uh, had uh, Labour Party backgrounds, uh, apolitical or National Party backgrounds. That is not what matters. What matters is do they have integrity uh, and do they have the the ability to fulfil their judicial oath to do justice for New Zealanders without fear or favour. Do you think having an Attorney General from a party that isn't the major party in the in the government, do you think that could risk undermining our current process? I would hope not. I think the critical thing is we need an Attorney General who is true to the principles I've outlined. When I handed over to David Parker, I think I said in the House I was delighted to hand over to David Parker because he was my political adversary, but was someone I respected enormously and never had any doubt that he would do the right thing, whether in the fact he was Labour hardly mattered. I took over from Michael Cullen, who was pretty well unique in that he was a non-lawyer attorney. He was actually a very good attorney general um, and performed, I think, the office with distinction. So it's not party political. It must not be party political, but you have to make sure that whoever is Attorney General, regardless of what party they're from, uh, holds fast the sorts of principles of independence and not acting from a particular partisan political point of view when dealing with these sensitive issues. Because 
if the appointments procedure is undermined, for example, it'll be very, very hard to get it back. And then what about the responsibility of the serious fraud office? I, when I first became attorney in 2008, I was also minister responsible for the SFO, and I had a chat to Judith Collins, who was minister of police, and thought that was um, a position that sat more with her. Now, there are arguments, you know, they're a prosecution service, so uh, and the attorney general's responsible for the Crown solicitors. So there was an argument it could stay with the attorney, but I thought it should go with her as Minister of Police. Crown is appealing the acquittal of people associated with the New Zealand First Foundation donation scandal, charges that were originally taken by the SFO. So you've got the Crown, the courts, the SFO, all in the mix there over allegations of donations used to support New Zealand First. Could that pose a conflict for Winston Peters if he were to be made Attorney General, given that that web of responsibilities? Is it a bit messy? Oh, well... Every minister is required to sit down as soon as they become a minister, and one of the first things they have to do is work through their conflicts. And I made a list of them when I became attorney that I had acted for Naitahu for years and it therefore could not be involved in any matter concerning Naitahu, and that affected um, a, a few K, K cases. So I would think any incoming attorney, any incoming minister will have to review uh, his or her position and deal with exactly that sort of matter. And that would be a conflict to your mind? Uh, Yeah, and of course, conflict of interest is often hurled around the place as a form of attack on people, but the critical thing is the appearance of conflict can often be as bad as an actual conflict, so one has to be very sensitive in this area uh, so that you don't have... um, Sideshows. It is always such a great pleasure to speak with you, Chris Finlayson. Thank you very much for your time. My pleasure. Thanks a lot. I'm interested to hear your thoughts too. Email me, tovatstuff.co.nz, and we will get to some of your feedback a little later. Kia ora, I'm Adam Blair. I played the great game of rugby league for the Storm, Tigers, Broncos and the Mighty Warriors. And I'm Goran Paladin, sports presenter and rugby league fanatic. I won a World Cup too. I played 51 tests for New Zealand. Yeah, he's a national treasure, people. Come on. Blairy and I, we're joining forces for a brand new rugby league podcast called League of Our Own. Each week we talk Kiwis across the NRL and of course everything was. All the big names, the big stories. And some of my own stories too. Well, if we can make them fit. We'll make time. Okay. League of Our Own with Blairy and Goran. Debut ep dropping on Wednesday afternoon and every Wednesday after that. You can listen through stuff.co.nz or wherever you get your podcasts. Proudly brought to you by Snap Rentals. Mate, your, your stories are way too long, eh? Nah, we've got to take them on a journey. <laughs> oh, the journey. Yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's get to the beehive buzz with our political editor, Luke Malpass. Luke, we are sat here in this little podcast, sta- uh, what is this, den? Cave? In the... <laughs> In the, so. um, in the parliament, and uh, we're desperately looking for any hints, any signs of white smoke or activity around the beehive. What do you think is going to happen? Wouldn't it be great if there were two chimneys with smoke, though? It would actually ha- it would do us an enormous <laughs> service. Yeah, Sue, so look, um, there's a real determination to get it done. 
they're still just haggling over the basically the, 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 the final jobs. And it's really who gets deputy and then what is the compensation for the other side on that. Mm. So um, if I were to, if I were to guess Winston Peters will be deputy, Prime Minister and Act will get something extra. And that's interesting, isn't it? Because Luxon had squared off all the policy, so he couldn't dip into that pot to then leverage some of the positions. But do you think he might dip back into the policy pot? Uh, There's another might, role, possibly. Yeah, I think depending on if, say, ACT were to get another ministry, I mean, um, you know, for example, if someone like Andrew Hoggard would come into agriculture, then he might have a couple of things he particularly wants to do. But I think more or less policy is closed off, and basically it's personnel and how does it all sort of work and fit together, and is everyone uh, confident that they have enough status that they have enough jobs for their people, because in the end, politics is the oldest form of patronage, and kind of how will it work around a cabinet table. And I think particularly for ACT and New Zealand First, I mean, ACT obviously they have Winston and um, Shane Jones, but the rest of their caucus and all of ACT's caucus, basically no ministerial experience. So, you know, all those sorts of things have to be weighed up, plus the fact that there's a lot of Nats who, um, you know, props on themselves and want a, want a decent job. Oh, yeah, that's going to be a conversation uh, for Luxon <laughs> and his caucus to be a fly on that wall. Well, hope springs eternal. Once again, so thrilled, Luke, to, to actually see you in person, have a bit of a yarn, and um, we wait. And so we wait. Let's install some chimneys. <laughs> <laughs> I'm always interested to hear from you too. Email tova at stuff.co.nz. Producer Chris is with me now. Hey, Chris, how you going? Good, mate. How are you? Very, very well, thank you. Very well. In- intrigued to hear what you've pulled from the mailbag for us this week. Yeah, well, we love answering uh, our listeners' questions in this section of the pod, and we had multiple emails this week about who's paying for all these coalition talks, the fancy, swanky Auckland hotels, and the significant number of flights up and down the Motu. Shona says all the parties that are part of the negotiations during the election campaign ripped apart the public service and the amounts that are spent. As a public servant for nearly 44 years and seeing the good work that we do every day, it really annoys me to think of the money these parties are spending on travelling around the country. How much of this is being funded by the taxpayer? And in a similar vein, Mary writes, why isn't anyone asking why taxpayers are paying for these talks to take place in expensive hotels in Auckland when we have a big empty building called Parliament with many rooms in it not being used? Luxon wants to cut wasteful jobs in the public service. Where is the fiscal responsibility at the moment, I wonder? Very good points, both. Thank you very much. And I think there are a lot of MPs, actually, that share those views. As far as we know, the in-person talk started at the Pullman and then continued at the Cordis. Neither of those hotels you'd describe as anything other than top end. For example, a daily rate at the Cordis conference room is about 1000 bucks. A thousand bucks a day. Wow. And looking at flights at the moment as well, because I've been having to come back and forth every time there's a wink or a nudge that and they are not they're not cheap at the minute. It's about four hundred bucks to fly one way between Auckland and Wellington at the moment. And yes, all of the stuff is paid for from the public purse. Christopher Luxon said that he believes that I didn't think, Chris, that he sounded so sure or like he was running a ruler over things, but he did say that the cost of holding talks in Auckland is borne by the parliamentary service and that that's the price of democracy. Parliament's rules 
Yeah, he didn't he didn't sound 100% sure, and I suspect that any journalist worth their salt, which obviously includes you, will be digging into this in the days and weeks ahead. Now I will. And we have actually a little bit already. Parliament's no rules. pressure. <laughs> <laughs> um, Parliament's rules around expenses, although they're a little complex. In short, they say MPs need financial resources and support services to be effective in fulfilling their parliamentary responsibility. And that's where we think this pot of gold is coming from. Uh, Moving on, Joe got in touch about last week's pod covering cuts to the core public sector. There's been huge interest in that story. Everything you've recorded and written about that Tover has really, really resonated with Stuff's multiple audiences. Uh, And on the pod last week, uh, you broke the news that Statistics NZ was set to cut jobs by Christmas. Joe writes... Given that the census won't happen again for years, obviously staff need to go. I hate to see people lose their jobs, but the fact that no services will be affected by the loss of highly paid positions says it all. Twitter, our ex, of course, runs fine without 80% of its staff. I truly, truly wonder what the 4,000-plus staff at the Ministry of Education do, given there is no standardised curriculum. Keep up the good work. Thank you very much, Joe, for getting in, in touch. Um Good points about the about the census, and that's that's certainly part of the rationale from Stats NZ, and also the fact that the census is going to change in subsequent years as well. I don't ever like to see jobs go either, and I can't imagine how stressful that would be right before Christmas for all of those people at Stats or in other parts of the public service which are facing cuts. We've also been interested in the fact that a lot of departments seem to be making these preemptive strikes ahead of the incoming government. A lot of the cuts are on Labor's directive, but public servants have certainly been telling us that they feel their bosses are proactively trying to get ahead of uh, the the National Act and New Zealand First Government who have all said they want the quote-unquote waste to be cut out of the quote-unquote bloated bureaucracy. And that's kind of an interesting point, whether the public service should be taking some actions ahead of actually being given a directive by the new government, which... At this juncture, we still do not yet have. No, and there's uh, the whole of last week's episode pretty much was about that. So if you didn't get a chance to listen to it last week, go back. It's fascinating stuff. And finally, Tanya said she's really enjoying your coverage of the formation of the new government, particularly the talk of Christopher Luxon's experience in mergers and acquisitions. Mm. Tanya has one question, though, when it comes to New Zealand First and Act. Who's the merger and who's the acquisition? <laughs> um, thank you very much, Tanya. It's got to be, Seymour's got to be the merger, right? Luxon always said his preference was to work with ACT, but the voters forced him to include or acquire uh, Winston Peters. So Seymour, the merger, Peters, the acquisition. And should we end on that clip, Chris? Because it was pretty weird. Let's go for it. Yeah, Luxon yeah. made this. He, I think he made a story out of this by failing to, uh, to, failing to answer our questions last week about what exactly his merger and acquisition experience is. Here you go if you missed it. On your negotiating experience, can you tell us a bit about your merger and acquisition experience, what you've actually done in that field? Well, um, I've done a lot, obviously, in my business life at Unilever and also at New Zealand. But uh, What, what were the examples? Uh, I'm, I, I'm not going into them specifically. How, how, many, how, many, how many were there? <laughs> um, just, um, if you understand Unilever and you understand in New Zealand and what we did at Virgin and what we did in other things, uh, you'll understand what, what we did. Sorry, just on that, what were some of the things that you learned from those mergers and acquisitions oh, that the, you're telling us? The about? absolute importance of making sure that you take time at the beginning to get the foundation 
Washington right for a good agreement uh, and that you actually make sure that you've got a, you know, got a good alignment. If you don't have alignment on what you're trying to achieve, the goals by which you're trying to deliver against, uh, that's important. And were you part of that merger and acquisition that was between Virgin Australia and Air New Zealand? Was that one of your uh, mergers I, and acquisitions? Uh, Air New Zealand had a position in Virgin when I took on as CEO and then I obviously uh, sold the position. In terms of the next, sorry, I don't actually know the ins and outs of, of Unilever. So how many mergers and acquisitions were you actually part of? Um, well, there's a company that actually bought a lot of different companies. Uh, so Unilever is one of the largest companies in the world. Um, so you oversaw how many of those mergers uh, and acquisitions? A number of them. So yeah. So You've been listening to Tova, hosted and produced by me, Tova O'Brien. There's a new episode every Thursday. You can listen to them all at stuff.co.nz slash Tova or wherever you get your podcasts. If you follow us on your favourite podcast app, you'll get the latest episode automatically. And keep an eye on the feed for bonus shortcasts, particularly this week. Thanks to the production team, Aaron Darman, audio editor extraordinaire, Connor Scott, and our amazing executive producer, Chris Reed. Most of all, thanks to you for listening. A week is a long time in politics. Anything could happen. We got you. Kakite. If you like this podcast, please support our work. Visit stuff.co.nz/support.